to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown. And today I am bringing to you one of my favorite guests and a dear friend, Dr. Mark Sloan. Dr. Mark Sloan has been a board certified practicing pediatrician for more than 39 years and is considered a local, regional, and statewide expert in the diagnosis and treatment of pediatric disorders of mood, behavior, learning, and attention, and has evaluated and treated 10,000 children with these disorders. Dr. Sloan is a graduate of Michigan State University, Go Green, College of Osteopathic Medicine, and completed a specialized fellowship training in adolescent behavioral medicine at Michigan State University Kalamazoo Center for Medical Studies. He is a founding member and current medical director of the Child's Trauma Assessment Center at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. He also serves as a trauma-informed medical consultant and provides trauma-informed fetal alcohol syndrome disorder informed training, and consultation for a variety of child welfare agencies, community, mental health groups, schools, courts, and primary care practices throughout Michigan and across the United States. Dr. Sloan has provided trauma-informed training and consultation to more than 750 primary care providers across Michigan and in the United States and is currently providing training and consultation for multiple community collaborative trauma projects across the state. Since 2019, Dr. Sloan has been a trauma consultant in a Northern Michigan trauma project that is part of the Michigan Department of Education 31N Mental Health in Schools initiative. Dr. Sloan has extensive experience in connecting local primary care communities to local schools and other community partners to better serve children and adolescents with complex neurobehavioral issues. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Mark Sloan. Hey, Mark, how are you? Hi, Leah. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm so excited to have you back. Woohoo! You yeah, are number three. I can't. I didn't think you'd allow it. Not, I feel honored, but well, you are one of the top listened to podcasts. I'll have you know. So you're in the top four of all well, time. Kind of scary, scary, but <laughs> I'm honored. That's awesome. Well, I've known for a long time that you're like super fun to listen to. So. Um, yeah. So anyway, I'm really glad that I, after I've hounded you a bit, sorry. about that. No, man, that was good. Cause I, I need the nudges. That's that, that's uh, always necessary for me. Well, let's just dive right in. I mean, you well, and I've been interested in children's mental health for a long time, but you were like led the path and were certainly my mentor. And, um, I think we were both pre Prozac, if we can imagine that. Yep. Right. Yeah. We, yes, we were five. I was five years before it. Yeah. Yeah. Seven came out. I was, I started in 82. Yeah. Well, and I guess just in thinking back on your career, which has been a lovely and long one, what stands out to you most about where we are right now with kids' mental health? Well, I guess the, the tension for me right now is trying to convince primary care docs that they can do more, but realizing that they haven't had enough training. And how can we do that? How can we get them more training without overwhelming them? That's my tendency. 
is when I get an interested person, I kind of want to just drown them with everything I have uh, because I really am convinced that, you know, the child psych world is just never going to be able to handle the volume of kids that we have. And, and I think I've, we've talked about this before, you know, that in 2000, the Surgeon General did a projection of need for child psych. Uh, that it was a big study and it was, and they, and by 2020, which seems so far away at that point, there was supposedly a need for 40,000 child psychs. And there's about 7,500 right now, which wow. is actually less than there was then. And it's, again, there, I, I remember asking one of our friends about why aren't there more child psychs? And he said, well, two extra patients, mom and the dad, two extra years of training and less money. You do the math. <laughs> and I thought, wow. What a perfect response. You know, and it helped me because I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop wishing. And I know that the American Psychiatric Association has been counting on telepsych, which, which is fine versus nothing, but our traumatized kids often don't even think those doctors are real people. They'll often say, I think he's a cartoon doctor, like, you know, Dr. Stuffins, you know, and they really are, they struggle with reality and fantasy blurring and such. And so it's not uh, optimal. And then the, the other, the other answer they have is, you know, nurse practitioners, which is again, welcome. They're welcome to help, but it's still the patients want their doc to do it. You know, I, how many times have I heard my patients when I was working in Kalamazoo and I was planning to close my practice and I had so many kids say, please don't send me to the psychiatrist. I don't want to go to that because I know what that means. Why can't you stay in practice? Why can't my primary care doc do it? And, and I spent lots of time in that six months going to people's offices and holding hands and looking at files and trying to help them decide they could handle it. But so that's, that is really, I think that remains the challenge is how do we set it up? And I think one of the answers is more training and more training and residency and med school, which is starting to happen. I, I'm involved in a project in Detroit. I think we've talked about that, Authority Health, which trains doctors for inner city practice, part of Michigan State DO school where I went. Uh, it's been exciting because I get to meet with their residents during their community medicine rotation. And we it basically, it's a hour and a half conference call that we talk about integrating trauma-informed care into their practice or their clinic. And that's following a curriculum that we put together that they watch, you know, we're uh, a series of presentations they watched before, you know, while they're going through their rotations. And that's been exciting because I've, I've now been doing that for four or five years and I can see the impact when they go to practice. And then they email me and say, wow, you were right. I'm the only one in this practice that knows anything about this. And they, they're looking at me to do it. And I don't know if I'm ready to teach them. I just started. But it's always exciting when that happens. Well, and I think back, you know, again, you and I, having way too much fun and doing lots of laughing yeah. together. And I think I sort of fell into it because I was the only woman in the practice. So I yeah. saw all the adolescent girls. Yes. And I remember my first talk was called Mad, Bad, and Sad, Sad. Girls. Loved that one. <laughs> and, so you know, perfect. and that was kind of the first of it. And I think partly it was just personal interest in mental health. I mean, I just, I, I find it and still do fascinating. And so sometimes for me, it's hard to understand like why other people don't love it more <laughs> because, because I do. And the other thing 
is that this is where the need is. I mean, obviously, we still have needs to treat infectious disease as the past three years have taught us, you know, and so it's hard being a pediatrician because, you know, the breadth of the skills needed and the breadth of the knowledge, but I just don't think we can ignore that mental and emotional health. And it doesn't necessarily mean medication, which I think is a big turnoff right. that remains a struggle, even though, but that's where the kids are. That's what they need. I mean, right. and so it's incumbent upon us to figure out, just accept it. I think we're in that uh, kind of grief phase. <laughs> like it's not what it used to be, maybe pediatrics. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to put it. And that, you know, there's anger and denial and frustration, but at some point there has to just be acceptance that this is where we are and this is where the needs are. And the field has evolved. I mean, it just, you know, and you thinking back on the last 20, 30 years, I mean, what have some of the things that you've seen evolve that you never thought would happen? Well, I, I did not anticipate how much screening would start to happen, you know, in in, at every level. And that's been, uh, because I think before when I was starting doing this and you saw that, you know, we, we did screeners and I used to feel like, God, I'm the only one doing this. I I'm, I'm sorry. You have to fill all these papers out. I used to, and we used to have the parents do them. We wouldn't schedule their appointment unless they filled them out because we had so many of them filling them out in the waiting room on the way back to the room. And I knew they weren't doing thorough job. And but I thought, you know what, there's got to be a way we can do some of this without having to do everything, because I was relying on that data to make decisions, especially when I started doing consulting. I didn't know the families, but but I think the docs, if they see that, that that's possible, that, then I think they right away get excited, especially if they have some good outcomes early. I always hope when I recommend things to docs now that, click, I hope you have a good outcome because that could shape your whole mindset about how to do this. But that, but that, but I didn't have anybody helping me. Like you had said, I started going to psychiatric meetings because I, that at least I could go, you know, the ones that, uh, at Mass Generalist when I, that's when I would go to. I think you actually went. Yeah. You and I went both. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so that was nice to see doctors that had data and were, were willing to ask the audience, okay, who's using SSRIs and kids? And I'm like, I don't want to admit it. I dabbled and I was raising my hand and there was probably 20 pediatricians there and 400 psychiatrists. And it was amazing because then he goes, okay, good. I'm, there's a few that are, well, here's some data. And I'm like, oh my God, that's an NIH study. Oh my God, that's exactly what I've been looking for. And then I, I found I had to pull that out on my own, and it, which was fine, but I, I wish there would have been some mentors that were willing because psychiatrists were everywhere, but they didn't really think that pediatricians should do it. As, well, as yeah. We well. I remember, yeah, there was that, I think the word tension you used earlier strikes me as you are a pediatrician, you really shouldn't be doing this, but I can't see the kids, so you're going to have to. So yeah, what a setup that is. It, you, know? you know, what were you supposed to do? And so, I, I mean, I think a huge thing is just the medications that became available. Now, I do think that there was some stuff that happened, and maybe it was at that Mass Gen conference with... um Biederman, wasn't it? Yeah, Joe Biederman. Yeah. Joe Biederman and sort of the whole um, bipolar erupted in kids. Like, is this yeah. bipolar? And, you know, in yeah. retrospect, and I think we'll talk about it in a little bit, 
in the trauma world, a lot of that's probably trauma, not bipolar disorder. And so that was kind of a a trajectory that sort of went off, maybe causing some complications. Right. Well, and, the, the balance, you know, that, and that's something yeah. that, uh, and, and what was helpful to me too, was to have some therapist that I could talk to, in a you know, easy kind of way. And, and I, you know, we both did that kind of at the same time we were, you would tell me about somebody that was good with TH girls and I hadn't known them. And sometimes I talked to a therapist who told me about somebody in their building that I didn't even know was there. And so once I got a kind of a cachet of those folks, that really helped me with tracking the outcomes of what I was deciding. Because I had to rely on the moms and dads to tell me, and that wasn't always the best way to go. It was really nice to hear a therapist say, you know, I was against this. I told mom, let's try not doing the meds. Let's try, let's try everything else. And then I finally said, wow, we're stuck and we're not making any headway. And and then sure enough, the med gets happened and they say, well, it's so much more fun now to see this kid. And they're so much less rigid and they're not falling apart in the middle of the session and they're not crawling under the table or they're not shutting down or they're not getting angry. And that was so nice to hear that over and over again. Even OTs and Wendy, our OT Fred would would want to go first. She'd always say to me, I want to go first. Let me go first. And then she'd come back and go, okay, uh, never mind. That was this was up. worse than I thought. And then she would call back and say, wow, I'm so much better as an OT when he's treated. And that was so fun to hear speech therapists say that. And everybody and teachers were saying that, you know, like he's now I know a lot more about his learning disability before it got buried in his anger. And now that the anger has settled down, I realized part of his problem is he really can't decode. He's really got some issues. And you know what? We're going to do a special ed assessment. And before we were going to do it, and, and parents said, no, he's not emotionally impaired. And that was so all those things started coming together. And it was really the same time that the ADHD comorbidity um, research was coming around. And that first study from NIH in 99 that, you know, the MCA study that, you know, was 600. 87 kids, you know, in 20 sites. And it was, but and they screened out all the super anxious kids in that study because they were, it was a stimulant study and still had a 35% incidence of anxiety disorder in seven to nine year old boys, which just blew me out of the water. That all of that, I started, I remember Dr. Regal, our, our mentor used to call it ADHD simplex, you know, <laughs> and I thought, is that a thing? And it turns out it is a thing. Probably half the kids just have that. But I was only seeing the complex kids. And how right. do we figure that out? They have a little bit of this. They had sensory processing issues. They had learning differences. They didn't quite have learning disability. They had anxiety issues. They had mild depression. Was it secondary to anxiety? Blah, blah, blah. And then I, so I got better at doing all that. And then I went to CTAC and started working for the trauma center and went, oh, wow, these kids are the kids that I was seeing before with great families and every support system you could have, plus prenatal exposure and trauma. No wonder they struggle. Right, and right. how do you tell what to do first on those kids? That's always been the challenge. So you just unpacked a huge amount of, of work, right? I mean, I think, yeah. I, I mean, as we're talking, I mean, the kids in my head pop up, you know, the successes where, you know, somebody had horrible anxiety, paralyzing anxiety, and with lots of work, medications, yes, but 
really great therapy and then the kids are able to go to college or you know the kids that are able to launch and you know were there some times when the medications backfired yes um you know and i think i can count on one hand the number of kids that i think had true hypomania with an ssri one in particular just stands out i will never forget but it was so uncommon you know for the number of kids that i was prescribing medications no. for for you know your kind of garden variety anxiety and depression but that scares people and you know, the suicidal ideation for so many kids, it was there already. Oh, and so, you know, the actual number of kids where somebody said, I never had that thought. I started this medication and now I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. Again, was very uncommon. I mean, I, I had yeah. to, of course, tell the parents about the possibility, right. but the reality was it didn't happen that often. But I think that that fear is very deep. For a lot of pediatricians, even pediatricians that are really experienced. No, it is. It's still scary. And I think with me, when I went to the consulting practice model, then I saw it go up because I had sicker kids, mm -hmm. you know? And so that was, so I, re I remember a kid I saw at the early childhood clinic at, that I worked at in my last five years and one dose of Lexapro, this kid didn't sleep for three days. And was just off the hook. And the home-based therapist was begging me not to make them go over to the house again. Because the parents were so mad at me. Because, and even though I had told them, you know, this is, here's the downside. You have to be ready. It might be three, three to five days. Well, it was one dose. And, and that was so interesting because she, this therapist really was like, please, please, I'm serious. You got to tell my supervisor I don't have to go because they're going to hurt me if I go back. And, and that was after 30 plus years of experience. I was literally afraid to see the family the next time. I thought they'd transfer. And they said, well, you told us that might happen. I just didn't think it'd be that bad. But I've, I've had more than you have because of that. And because of the trauma piece, we, we're still trying to figure out where that fits. You know, how do you tell when a kid has trauma issues plus mental health issues, you know, or just trauma or just trauma plus ADHD? That's always been a thing that not many people are who care that much about. Even psychiatrists that work see those kids, they, they're thinking mental health instead of looking at that big picture. Right, right. That's a, yeah, that's a really interesting thought. Like you're thinking about a child who's been traumatized, who is super anxious, but is that an anxiety disorder or is that just compensatory unrelenting fight and flight, you know? And so would they respond to medications the same? Probably not because, or maybe, I don't know. Is the, is the circuitry and the chemistry the same? Well, the data, here's some data that I, I found fascinating when I was researching resiliency in adults. And as part of a talk that I gave, and there's a book by Dave, um, Steve Southwick and, uh, oh my goodness, can't think of the other guy from NIH. Um, they wrote a book on resiliency for adults. And one of the chapters was on uh, Vietnam survivors. It was actually John McCain's cohort as a Hanoi Hilton. And they did some extensive research in the 80s on these guys that were in the same place for their trauma, either in the, in a, in a hot, in the uh, prison camp or like the squadron. And they were looking at all sorts of things like BDNF, you know, brain-derived neurotrophic factor and some other things, neuropeptide Y and some other 
other th- measurable things in the eighties before we had a lot of sophistication. And one of the things they looked at was serotonin genetics, you know, the serotonin short allele, which is the bad gene for serotonin, re- uh, the pump, you know, serotonin uh, transporter. And if you had the bad gene from both parents, you had a tenfold risk of PTSD for the same exact trauma hmm. which was, wow, it was crazy when I read that. It's like that. And, and, in, and the, in the book said, it's also true for kids. And so we see this now all the time in our work with traumatized kids. Is that kid set up for this? Because what we also know is if you've got genetics for that, prenatal stress alone, especially domestic violence, will increase epigenetically your risk, you know, probably tenfold of actually having a full-blown anxiety disorder and maybe even when you're a baby and it presents as irritability and problem sleeping and regulatory issues and, and sensory issues and, and knowing the right mind is going to say, yeah, I think we should do a, you know, some Prozac in the nipple, you know, I think but this will help this kid. But yet it's that kind of predictable. And now, now there's some genetic, you know, research that's showing that you can do a, a, a newborn's assay of epigenetic factors and you can almost track some of those things and see just how many switches have been flipped epigenetically in utero. And and you can also see the same thing with some of the other drugs, although much, much of the epigenetic impact of drugs is based on traumatic stress that goes along with it. But so that kind of stuff is, is so interesting because if you don't treat the underlying piece, then how in the world are you going to do trauma therapy on a kid that's basically terrified of everything? Yeah. And so that's, but yet you're not going to get there with just the meds. And that's where I struggle with the PhD research world that I dealt with through our grants that they, they just didn't want to listen to a practitioner like me that said, Hey, I know you guys know what you're talking about, but you have to be careful. You're turning off a whole generation of therapists into not even mentioning it to the families because there's this backlash for meds, you know, especially in foster care, which in California, for example, tenfold more use of meds in foster kids versus general population. And it led to the Michigan rules about making it harder to write scripts for foster kids. It was kind of the baby bathwater model that we, we have been kind of struggling with because we don't want to not give them if they need them, but we also don't want to put every kid on Risperdal because they might have bipolar. Right? So and that, and that's because I'm a doc, you know, you know this, I don't want to under, undersell meds, but I also don't want to say, yeah, well, let's just wait forever before we do it. Cause if, if we, if the kid has low, th- I always use this example. If you have a low thyroid level, as an adult doc and you're showing the patient, you know, you're, here's your level, you know, but it's not that bad. I've seen worse. Suck it up. You know, why don't you just work harder? You know, you need to eat less. Why don't you lose some weight? Why don't you start working out? Would, would you really do that? Or would you tell somebody that was diabetic, you've got insulin. What do you want from me? Like a pump? Oh, wait, they do have a pump. I guess we could get better at that. But it's, that's how silly it is when you think about neurochemicals and behavioral medicine. If we had the mechanism, like Dr. Bowen's on Star Trek to do the one, 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 one tricorder thing, we'd do it in a heartbeat. But sure. right now we don't have that, but we have to do that with our observations and our, our medication model that we put together was brain based because we didn't want to be stuck looking at the DSM and saying, wait a right. minute, we have to have full criteria because the DSM doesn't help you at all with treatment choice. 
It just helps you with diagnosis. And it's a man-made kind of a deal. It's not brain-based, one bit. Right, right. It was interesting. I did a podcast with Heather Forkey on Mm -hmm. trauma and resilience. And we were talking about just the whole trauma world. You know, it sort of went from, you know, the ACE study in 98, 99 to even a name for it and then sort of the evolving science and research and you know basic research with mice and then the you know toxic stress and the epigenetic and now sort of this resilience piece that a lot of it has to do with our relationships we have with other people who knew right who knew that science would devolve into people need people (laughs) <laughs> How powerful that is. Yeah, that's, yeah, she's, she, and she's an expert. And I love listening to her talk because she's so personal and she's so emotionally, you know, kind of on target. And, and yet that's, that is the issue, you know, that how do you put all this together? It's so much. And then we have this, you know, I have this bumper sticker in my head, you know, embrace complexity is what I like to say. And, and, and yet, that's a two-edged sword, embrace complexity, but then, oh my God, how are we supposed to do this? Because we don't have research on order of treatment and we, we, mm-hmm. nobody has taken that on. We're in the process of putting together this kind of mega pilot study in one of the rural counties that we work in up north to try to do a, literally handle every piece of a puzzle from birth to, you know, age 19 or whatever, even farther beyond. How do you, track this stuff how do you decide who gets what and how do you track outcomes and how do you do and how do you do it in a small place that's not super super populated as a way of of uh, you know getting started using a translational model like how can we do basic science in the clinic in the school and start to measure things that even the doubting thomas state department of ed people are going to like listen to when because all they talk about is, well, did it reduce like, res- you know, restraints or did it reduce referrals to the reflection room? And, and sometimes we found very quickly in our work at SeaTac that if you use the kids as your model, you don't see the results right away. So you can get fooled. We, we started with the staff and said, what can, how can we change the staff's approach to treatment, uh, to, to, uh, to handling the kids? first and then the kids will benefit from that and then we can certainly work with the kids too but we found that we could show in a six months time frame that social work staff therapy staff school staff had substantial changes in their behavior when they understood that this kid wasn't willful right and that was before the research and resiliency came out where we said wait a minute we've got to build that because if we don't build it we there's no hope to do one diagnosis one treatment uh, in this area, there's just, it's just not ever going to happen, but we've got to have everybody kind of pulling the same way to make sure we build that. Cause in, re- in our trust based relational intervention model that we're using now from, that's from Texas Christian, you know, it's something that people should check out. You should put that in the notes, but it's, uh, you know, Karen Purvis is, is now passed away, but she did this incredible job of taking her experience in the foster care system in Texas. And linking up with a psych professor at Texas Christian, Dave Cross, who's just now retiring, and he made it into a model. You know, he took her work and she took CTAC things that she had worked with Jim on a grant. She took things from TheraPlay. But it was interesting because the whole thing that Karen said was, you know, connect before you correct. 
you know, and connection before correction. And, and so one of the things we do with schools is help the teachers have more ways of getting better at connecting because every school has a handful of teachers that are really good at that. And they're the ones that don't have issues with the kids that are high flyers and they get whack from the staff sometimes like, oh yeah, you, yeah, you must give that kid whatever he wants because nobody else has the luck you have. And yet we go observe those teachers and go, wow, look at that. That teacher knows that kid. She's attuned to that kid's every move. She knows when he's losing it. She's 15 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute and a half ahead of everyone else and is anticipating this, that, and the other. And this kid just does not lose it with her. And so, but yet, how can we help other teachers get better at that? And that's the whole thing of TBRI. How can we move them down that continuum and give them practical tools? Tools, the tools for schools is kind of our mantra for that. And then docs can do the same thing. Docs are great. Primary care docs, pediatricians are great at relationships. And it's all about relational health. Like Andy Gardner's book, you know, the developmentally, um, thinking developmentally has, you know, that whole model. And it's great because it takes something that we know we're good at and basically weaponizes it, so to speak. So we can use that to help the mom work with the, her adversaries in the neighborhood or whatever. And that part is, we're trying to use TBRI as a connector between agencies that way. I'm wondering when you're saying that, so a lot of things are, I, first of all, I love connect before you correct. And it makes me think of a, a quick example. So this summer, early in the morning, my husband and I are sitting on our back porch in our pajamas because it's a very secluded backyard. And we look up and there's a man in our yard who had somehow come over the fence And being a woman, of course, my first response is fight or flight, you know, like, ah, am I safe? My husband, uh, I think being a guy and not thinking that he should worry about anything. First of all, he asked me to get him his pants so he didn't go out in his boxers. But he went out and started talking to this um, man who was clearly he was really upset. He was crying. I mean, he was, you know, he, he clearly had some mental health issues. I mean, you could tell right from the get go. And he sat down. I mean, I have my phone. I'm like, do I need to call 911? And when I first asked him something, he said, will you call my sister? And then he said, will you call my parole officer? So then, of course, my red flag went up like, "Ah, you know, we got some history here. But, you know, we offered him a sandwich and something to drink and calmed him down. And ultimately, we did end up calling the police because his parole officer said, yeah, you really should. So when the police got there, the first officer was kind of your basic confrontational guy. And, you know, show me your hands. What's your name? And the second police officer was so much different. She was probably 5'2". And she was just like, hey, what's going on? And it was so different. And his demeanor changed completely. And, you know, again, it was that she was connecting with him as a human being. And so he wasn't guarded. He wasn't reactive. And, you know, it was a, which made me also think this is a reason why you should have a social worker show up with the police in in situation, because it would have made all the difference. Fortunately, this one police officer knew enough about de-escalation or she was just naturally that way that it made a difference. And you know, and going back to the the pediatric room and that connecting, you know, I think the fear about mental health is that somehow we don't have the skills or the knowledge to sort it all out and it's too complicated and it's not our job because somebody else should be doing it. 
But what we do have is, you know, I call it the magic in the room. We have those relationships and that is like the cornerstone to emotional well-being is if you have that relationship, you can take a breath, you can talk, find out what's going on, sort out a little bit, offer some hand-holding and buy some time. You don't have to fix it that in that appointment, but you can at least say, tell me what's going on. I'm sorry that's hard for you. I'm here to help. Let me see what we can do. Well, Karen Pruz, another one of her famous quotes was, if not you, then who? Which I thought is great because her whole thing is like, she's talking to daycare workers and foster care staff and people that are thinking the same way you just said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I got a high school diploma, you know, I'm bar- I barely got that. And yet everybody always comes to me with everything. It's like, yeah, you're, you were like class therapist, even though you barely graduated. Because guess what? You listened, you were supportive and you were empathetic and you weren't trying to fix it. And then it's been fun to watch schools get transformed when we come in and do that. Cause, cause the other thing that Karen was really big on was, and Karen Purvis is this person I'm referencing. She was big on structure plus nurture. It's gotta be both. And because if you just have structure, and no nurture, then you have basically a juvenile justice detention set up, you know, or concentration camp set up, you know, and you get behavior compliance, but you don't have something long-term. If you have just nurture and no structure, then the inmates run the asylum and you've got disorder and kids are begging for structure. If you have neither, you've got the meth lab house, you know, the, the trauma house. And then if you have both, then you have the best chance. So we'd come into a school and say, wow, you guys have structure. You're so impressive. I wish we could clone the structure in this place. But you know what? We're not seeing enough nurture. And often it's coming from the top. The fish rots from the head, we like to say, you know, at CTAC. And, and so if the principle is all about order, and almost always they have a trauma story, almost always, and so they are very triggered when kids start to talk about things that happen, especially if it's to one of the other staff, not them, but maybe the counselor or maybe the assistant principal or the RCT room person. But when we can come in and say, you know, your structure is great, but how can we get more nurturing in here? Because as a system, you need that. We see the same thing in child welfare agencies, same kind of thing that if the director is very hands-on and very um, kind of, a, you know, any, you can do anything, you know, just, you know, within reason that oftentimes the staff struggles because they want more leadership. They don't want just somebody who's nice to them. But then if they, if we got the hard ass, that's basically saying, Hey, you know, you got to do it, do it my way, or you, or you can hit the highway. A lot of people waiting for your job, then that's not going to work. So it's so interesting when foster parents hear that and go, Oh, you know what? I was thinking, you know, this kid's never had anybody be nice to them. And so I thought that would be all it would take. But you know what? As soon as he felt safe, he started really going at me, you know, and I was the one he came after. He didn't do it with my husband, you know, and I didn't, I not, then I said, I maybe I'm not cut out to be a foster parent, but I didn't really have a plan. And nobody told me about this because, you know, well, nobody really knew this. And so that's been really fun to see the need for that and the, and the impact it has in mobile settings when we, when we can come in and, and implementing it is hard. It's a, it's a hard thing to do. 
it takes a team, but it's really been already we're seeing the uh, the fruit of the labors in you know in lots of places. Well, and maybe you can talk a little bit about this model that you've created that basically is linking the schools, mental health, and primary care, which I think I've said for years, you know, we we have lots of resources. We're resource rich, linkage poor. Yeah, which is great. Great term. I use that all the time. <laughs> There's the three of us, those three groups that are working super hard to do their job. You know, the schools are trying to educate and we're trying to treat and, yep. you know, fix because that's what we do. And then the mental health are trying to do the, you know, the mental health support, but we're not talking to each other. So the the magic isn't happening. It's like mm-hmm. the recipe is not, you know, all the ingredients are there, but we haven't put them together. So talk about the model Good. that you've created and how the recipe, you know, develops. So the model is really, it's really the CTAC model, the Children's Trauma Assessment Center model that Jim Henry put together back in 2000, 1999, we started meeting. You know, so we're coming up on our 23rd anniversary of seeing kids, 6,000 kids now, which is crazy. But so Jim is a social worker. He was a CPS worker and now professor at Western Michigan. And Jim noticed when he was in a supervisor position for seven, nine years in Kalamazoo, actually, that, you know, we just didn't understand our kids very well. So how can we do better at understanding kids in foster care? And so he started working on what what model can I use? And so he ended up uh, adapting Bruce Perry's model. You know, and Bruce Perry, a lot of people know, is a MD, PhD, psychiatrist and researcher, actually pharmacology researcher, and who's now lives in Calgary and other places. But, uh, and Bruce was doing this in Chicago and in Baylor's Med School in, in Houston. And Jim went and observed both places and, and saw that they had a multidisciplinary team, which struck him. And they didn't have primary care there, which is interesting. But, uh, so that's what, how we changed it. But so Jim put together a program at Western with speech and OT, occupational therapy and social work and medicine. And we started seeing kids and we, Kind of the model evolved, but we were looking at basically a developmental assessment. We knew we couldn't get neuropsych because the kids were too fragile. The kids we were seeing, there's no way they could sit for a six-hour neuropsych test. So we were doing some developmental screens of things like cognition, memory, language, motor, uh, regulation. And then we did rating scales from teachers and parents and kids if they were old enough and and we had um, a physical, uh, and we also did um, fetal alcohol syndrome screen and assessment after getting trained at University of Washington. So we were the first place that really was integrating all that. And and we didn't know what we were going to get until our first data set. Um, got, we, we look at that about three years in, and we realized that, wow, this is better than we thought in terms of identifying the needs of kids, because we found that we got 90% of the kids we saw had had uh, significant language issues. 85% had memory issues. 85% had attention issues. It was just nuts. But, and so we thought, well, my gosh, they're not getting any of that. How can we do this better? And that has evolved some, but we still, it's kind of been the model. So, and you know, we had a big federal grant from ACF, Administration for Children and Families, back in the day, probably in, in 2012, we got it. And I ended up going up north to work with that grant, trying to help docs understand trauma. That was kind of my role. And so I would start out with the DHS 
directors in the counties we were working with. We had some pilot counties. And I just asked them, you know, well, what docs do you work with? You know, can you point me in the right direction? Because I don't know these guys. And they often were really helpful. And they'd also say, you know, you should probably talk to the schools because, you know, I've got a really nice relationship with the superintendent. And, and then and some of the principals have been over here and we've had some meetings and that would probably be a nice thing. And one of the DHS directors in Otsego County, which is Gaylord, her dad was the superintendent of schools for 30 years and was a foster kid, you know, and she said, I was programmed to be a social worker. And she said to me that I wish I would have thought of this. She goes, you know, I think if you can get the docs and the schools to partner in a really effective way, I think it will impact entry into foster care and child welfare. And I thought, wow, how brilliant is that? I gosh, I wish I'd have thought of it. I'm, I'm happy to give you credit. Her name was Cindy Pushman and she's now retired. But Cindy said, you know, let's do this. Let's just do this. And that was 2016 when I met her. And so we started out just kind of seeing what people thought. And, uh, you know, I trained like every agency, but, you know, a lot of times the, the schools were the ones that were the most interested. I did a training once in uh, Sheboygan County and the, you know, the DHS staff was kind of, you know, oh God, another training, you know, who's this doctor? I don't really listen to him. And then in the middle of the room are these four bobblehead, you know, I didn't know who they were. It's like, well, they don't look like DHS workers. They don't look burned out. They look like they're totally excited. Well, it turned out they were ISD people from the school that were there and, and they couldn't get enough. And so they asked me to do a trauma assessments in the school setting. When I first threw it to Jim, he just said, I don't think so. Really? You think you can do that? It's like, I don't know. I can't do it myself, but can you help me? And so we put in a trauma screening and assessment model, got a lot of flack from the ISD because it was too much. And we had to cut it back to a kind of expanded screen. So we really wanted to do that expanded screening, come up with some recommendations, and then connect with the docs about meds using our model that we had developed in 2011. And then I would be able to ongoingly see the kids in a, in a follow up format that we set up on Zoom before COVID because we didn't want to drive all over the county, actually three counties. It was hugely big. So we just, so the, my trauma coordinator and I would sit in the ISD and we'd just flip the switch every half hour and see another kid in another place. And so the follow up visits were transformational because we could hear the impact that the meds had on the teachers. And they would they'd tell us like, you know what? I think the meds are better because I didn't even know he was on anything, but well, it's a, he's a different kid now. He's at least willing to take on some hard things. Before, if it was too hard, he would just give up and he would get dysregulated. And we'd hear the therapist on, on the call and they, and you'd hear what they'd have to say. We'd, and then, and we started having the nurses from the doctor's office listening to everybody and they would listen to the call listen to the people on the team, and then they'd go right over to the doctor and say, I just got off the phone with the school team on so-and-so. And you know what? Mom's not giving us the whole picture. Shocker, you know? And, you know, it sounds like the boyfriend might be harassing her and maybe taking some of the meds. And maybe that's why she's getting re early refills. She doesn't want to tell you because she's afraid he's going to hurt her. But we know that what you're giving him is really working when he gets it. And the school's now giving it in the morning because they asked mom if she would like them to give it. 
So that was really profound because the doc started calling me going, I don't know what you're doing, but it seems to be helping. Can you see other kids for us? The funding we had was to have the schools be the hub of it. Then we started asking the courts to come. If we had kids in middle school or high school that were in juvenile justice, the, the JPO would come and be on the call. And then DHS would be on if that was, if that was appropriate. Cause the, if the kid was a CPS case or, or foster kid and we had the CMH folks come and the home based treatment people would come. We, we sometimes have 25 people on the call and they're only 30 to 45 minutes, but they, and they're, they're monthly if we need them to be. So that's when I started going, okay, this really does matter because I'm hearing this impact and feeling it because the emotional part was so profound from patients, from the staff, like, oh my gosh, I, I have hope now. I haven't had a lot of hope lately. And then COVID came and tried to derail us, but we realized then everybody was traumatized. We could use our methods for the entire classroom, especially the TBRI piece. And we found that that was just completely perfect timing in terms of, okay, this is what we were talking about. Everybody needs this. Now you don't have to worry about singling out anybody. They're all struggling. So that's where we're at right now in terms of screening and assessment, follow-up visits, ongoing training. And then the, our last thing is, is going to be like translational research project where we can really start to, to look at every possible piece of a county's deal and how can we make a difference and how can we track the outcomes so we can show people that this really does matter? So that sounds fascinating. And it just makes so much sense that, you know, everybody has eyes on the kid. I mean, it's a proverbial safety net yep. and we're all holding an edge of the net yep. and, you yeah. know, we're catching the kid in between. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm a primary care person. I got 25 kids on my list. <laughs> I've got four med checks on kids with ADHD. I've got one kid that just got thrown out of school. How does this make sense for me as a primary care person? I mean, is this like a scalable? I mean, who's going to do this? What's that going to look like? I mean, dream big for me. I know you love yeah. doing that. Well, no, I do. And that's, that is the issue. How do we translate this to every group? You know, because the school is, is the center of our model, but every group needs to have this mindset themselves. And we, we're doing trauma screening now in Michigan. It's a requirement for every uh, DHS kid in foster care or CPS, which is great. And we train the staff to do it. And it's now something that CMH is doing in not every county, but probably half the counties are doing it. We also have it in the courts. So that's that's been nice. The doctor's offices, we, and I was lucky to do us a, a long experience with one of the Bronson practices that, you know, that out in um, Van Buren County. And I was there for 49 months or something in a row on two different grants. And it was a long process, but we were, and we weren't sure. Cause when I got there, there were five providers. They were all doing something different. They didn't have any kind of cohesion. They got a brand new care manager nurse. That was, it, that was, that was a grant funded position. They didn't know what to do with her. She was local. Abby saved the grant, I used to say, um, often. And, and then we got a trauma therapist dropped out of the sky and, and they together were able to set up a, a screening model that they did on their own. And the docs were beneficiaries of it because they were just doing a, basically a phone call to do an intake. And then they were deciding whether they needed a doctor visit to, to look, work out a medical issue or they could come in for an actual formal screen. And they did it together. And they did like 400 of those in 18 months. 
It was crazy. And they started doing trauma screens towards the end because they didn't want to do trauma at the beginning. They said, we can't even do ADHD and anxiety together. Well, let's do the, let's walk before we can run. And, and so they were putting in that screen would go into this medical record, you know, to I, the electronic record. And they were, they were putting in some, some kind of recommendations for me. Dr. Sloan says if the anxiety level is this high that you maybe shouldn't do a stimulant. So they were not telling the doctor what to do, but they were just reminding them that remember, he's a fan of a non-stimulant for a starting point. It was amazing. And unfortunately, when the therapist left, the new person that came was not interested in doing it, but didn't feel comfortable. And so it kind of fell apart. But for like that 18 months, it was like this kind of Cadillac model. So I've always said, I know that's reproducible for the docs, but unless they have the care manager nurse, they can't have any way to connect with the community. When, when Abby was starting to do that, she was the coveted cell phone number in that county was Abby's number because they knew if they had her cell phone number, she would be in the doctor's presence within a few minutes and they wouldn't have to wait at, from the front desk. They went right to her. And so and she was on all the uh, community agencies, the suicide prevention, substance abuse task force, early childhood. Great Start Collaborative, and and she was the face of the franchise, I used to say. And so that is really, I think, the, the doc's only hope is to have a dynamic care manager nurse that doesn't have other responsibilities, and, and that's a care manager anyway. And pediatric care management, most of it ends up being behavioral because that's what's the need. That's where the need is. So it's doable, but it, it takes a lot of elbow grease, but it's, but I think the model is is doable because we've lived it and seen it work. So this is like a, a Julia Child's French cookbook recipe that's very complicated. It has a lot of ingredients, but it's fabulously delicious when it's done. I love that. That's, <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Um, but I'm thinking, so I, I think a couple things that you said people should take note of, and that is a nurse care manager. Yep. And because I think... I mean, honestly, I mean, for us having a social worker in the practice who could do a lot of this mm -hmm. also filled the same role. Right. And and I yep. think, you know, in my mind, in a perfect world, all physician practices would have a mental health person. But what you're saying is it could be a nurse care manager. Right. And you can have both. And I think that. Well, which would be really great. I think right? what Bronson, I think the Bronson wisdom when you were working there was that the social workers weren't obligated to see a bunch of kids. You know, they, they had the, the room in their schedules to help docs out with kids in crisis. And that, and that I remember the, the practitioners over in Papa would, would just be amazed because they'd do that 911 panic thing on the, on the epic, you know, on, and call somebody in the room. And then, and, and I did it and she came and it was like, there she is. It's a miracle. And she took, talked to the mom and I slipped out the door, caught up a couple of kids. I came back in 20 minutes and that mom wasn't crying anymore. And she wasn't suicidal anymore. And the kid didn't need to go to the ER. He just needed to come in for a screen and, and it was all set. And I thought, wow, the system works. And well, and that's, that's, so that's, that's where that, I, I think that the move is there to go that direction. But, you know, the funding has to be there. Somebody's going to have to pay for, you know, having a social worker. I think a lot of people can't imagine, especially if they're in 
private practice, how on earth am I going to be able to ger- to generate right. enough money with billing yeah. in order to cover their salary? I can't. But could they do something with a nurse in the interim? Uh, maybe I. You and know, even, that's even an MA that has the that has the time. We've worked with some amazing MA. They and they often have personal connections. They have a trauma story. Uh, they were in an d- abusive relationship. They understand what domestic violence is like because they lived it. And the, in a small town, everybody knows everybody, especially in rural medicine. But what's fun about this is you got to get the top, the very tippy top in on board. You know, so if it's a hospital-based practice, the CEO and has got to be not just you know complacently you know going along with it. They have to be active and basically say you're going to do this. This is the right thing to do. We've got the data now to show it. And we also, then you've got to have all the middle people there. You've got to have that. This can be kiboshed by a nursing uh, nursing supervisor or practice manager that decides that this is just such a waste of time. We need blah, blah, blah. This is not what we need. Those kids need to go to a psychiatrist and they're undermining everything everyone else is doing, but not in front of anybody. You know, so it can be brought down by two or three people in an office of 30, or it can be brought by one person in an office of six. And yet everybody suffers when that happens because, but yet the doctors also have to, they have to want to do it. They also have to be kind of compelled to do it because their salary is going to depend on it. So we've looked at a lot of models of, can we reward docs for doing more screens? And like, why can't we really build incentive to if you get trauma screens done, here's you're gonna get a lot of you're gonna get a lot of compensation for that because we know that's gonna it's gonna save the practice money in the long run. But it's it's not gonna be so easy. It's not a bean counters paradise if they're gonna say see more kids. It's like, no, you're gonna see maybe less kids and do it better and have have this model set up that you're gonna have word of mouth, you're gonna have more kids coming to the practice, but you're gonna also have they're going to see the need to build and all of a sudden you've got, oh, you have to get two care manager nurses because you've got too many people for one. But that's still, we still aren't at that point where we can have hard data to convince them. Yeah. It's still in that kind of, well, it sounds good, but it's not practical. So when you quit talking about it. Well, and I think that's where, you know, the insurers, although, you know, they, the insurances are now paying for collaborative care, you know, yeah. where yep. yeah. um, a psychiatrist is a consultant. You right. have a, a care manager who manages a panel of patients and they've shown good outcomes yep. on that. So, you know, I think it happens. It's it's just slow. So I know your wheels are turning and mm-hmm. listening to you. I'm all excited, like, oh, what about this? What about that? Who You need mm-hmm. to talk to. It's exciting. So, I, of course, I always love talking to you because it's way fun and you're just smart. Although, intimidate me with um, genetics and neuroanatomy. I just, my head starts. I, I think it's, I go to the wah, 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 like neurotransmitter gene sequence. So, in closing, yeah. after your very long career that keeps on going, it's like the Energizer Bunny. There you go. If you could go back and give yourself some advice when you were a resident, what would it be? I think would be connection is, is the everything, you know, that focus on that and don't worry about trying to find a psychiatric mentor. How can we go where the kids need us to go? You know, how can we see the need and meet it? 
that's, and that's what I tell the residents. Now you're going to know what you need a little bit later, but trust me, when you start getting asked by the veteran docs, because you've got things to say that they haven't thought about, it's going to be weird, but it's going to be fun. And I, I got an email last spring from a, a doc that it was just all about that. You were right. You were right. It was so exciting, but so scary. And I, I'm not ready to be anybody's leader, but, but they keep asking me. And I knew when I talked to her when, back when she was a resident, she was, she was family doc. She's going to be a difference maker. I could tell Though that email. I wanted to frame it and put it on the wall because that's what, you know, that's those little moments when you go, we call them sacred moments at CTEC. That's when you know that it's all worth it because it's, it's always got to start with the, the trenches as everything else does. Well, I think of you as a difference maker. You certainly made a difference for me and my my career and and the things that I do. And you you know you're an incredible teacher. And you're it's kind of the ripple effect. I don't think that you appreciate the impact that you've had on lots of people, not just physicians, but anybody who ever comes to a course where you're talking. They they're they're writing down notes and they're standing in line to talk to you. <laughs> Because I've seen it happen. Well, I appreciate those kind words. And I, and I really, this is, it's why I still feel like I'm, you know, I'm pushing 70, but I, I don't feel like that old when I've got people that want to listen to this. And so we just got a, we just got a new grant at CTAC to do family trauma assessments across Michigan, which is going to be a, a game changer. Cause we, we've been saying for years and we got to get the parents, we got to get the trauma diagnosed and treated. And now we're going to actually be able to do it with, you know, in conjunction with VHS, which, that kind of thing is like, okay, I got reinvigorated again because that's what we've been whining about. Like, we need the parents to get this done. And now it's going to well, be hopefully mandated. It feels like it boils down to caring about each other. Like, I care about your what's happened to you and I'm here for you and I'll I'll ride the ride with you. It's going to be rocky because things are hard, but you're not alone. That's good. And implementation is the I word. You know, that's that's always the hardest part. But you're right that we're all in this together. It's got to be that. That's got to be that. The last and I remember was- hearing Ned Hallowell speak at one of the conferences that we went to. And he yeah. said, regarding anxiety, he said, never worry alone. Yeah. You know, that's just such good don't be alone. And, and Heather Forky, you know, says one of the trauma responses that I mean, this just stuck with me. Fight, flight, freeze, or affiliate. Yeah, that's, that's what humiliate. What that's where that's what humans do in order yeah, to survive. Very good. Wow. So, well, listen, my friends, you take care. Happy New Year, and keep doing this fabulous work. Um, Thanks, you you've made such an incredible impact on kids and their families, and they were just so sad when you <laughs> left primary care to do all this other stuff. So, well, keep doing it. Will do. Thanks for having me again. So an honor to be back for the third time. (laughs) All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye now. Okay. I am a huge Mark Sloan fan, and he is just so brilliant and fun to listen to. So here are my takeaways. Number one, as I said, Mark is just the best. He's a gifted clinician, teacher, and mentor. He's creative, funny, and uber smart. So thank you very much. Number two, kids need us now more than ever, and the primary care providers are in the sweet spot to help. Parents want us to provide mental health care versus child psychiatry, not because we don't love and adore our child psychiatrists. It's just the kids know us. The tension is convincing us, the PCPs, 
that we can do more, but we need training and education and support. More to come on strategies. Number three, a big change in the mental health landscape came with screening. Developmental, autism screening, depression screening, all the things. We were and are finding kids who are struggling, and then there is the now what? Number four, we will need to educate ourselves. There is a push to increase mental health training, trauma-informed training, and residency, but for those of us in the field, this means conferences, reading, workshops, yes, podcasts, and the resources are out there, and I'll include some suggestions in the show notes. Number five, Mark cut his teeth on trauma work at CTAC, the Child Trauma Assessment Center, in Kalamazoo. There, he was assessing and supporting children in the foster care system. These kids often had a genetic predisposition with prenatal stress, in utero drug exposure, especially alcohol, trauma like domestic violence, and then the epigenetics kicked in, bumping up the risk of trouble considerably. Number six. So what works? Embrace the complexity. Mark's decades-long work, along with social worker and leader Jim Henry, demonstrated that the trust-based interventions by Karen Purvis matter and change behaviors. This works best in multidisciplinary teams like schools, mental health, DHS, juvenile justice system, primary care, OT, PT, music therapy, and addresses the depth of wounds. The repair must be intensive, not a band-aid. These are complicated problems. Number seven, medications serve a role in care, but there is no research on the order of treatment. What is needed is tracking who gets what, when, and the outcomes. Number eight, so more on what works. Connect before you correct. Build trust, use compassion. We're good at this, really good, but perhaps we don't believe that our relationships with patients and families is so impactful. We need to believe. Number nine, Provide both structure and nurture. Structure without nurture looks like juvenile detention. Nurture without structure looks like mayhem. It's too tenuous. You need both. I think we know this intuitively, but this is something we can pass on to parents. It's the stuff of resiliency. Number 10. Right now, Dr. Sloan is working in innovative models with schools, mental health, Department of Human Services, juvenile justice, and primary care providers using Zoom meetings and dedicated nurse care managers. Consider this as an option. While an ideal model is an acute care manager nurse and a mental health professional in primary care setting, start with what you have, maybe a passionate RN or an MA who may have lived experience. Get creative. Don't let this get in the way of doing what you need to do. Number 11. So here's my recipe for resilience building. These are the ingredients. The patient, the family, primary care, mental health, schools, juvenile justice, OT, PT, speech, music therapy. Yes, this is a repeat of what I said above. And here are the steps, the directions. Identify the needs with screens and scales. Teach the primary care provider about trauma and meds. You can check out the REACH program your child psychiatry access program, courses, books, all the things. Identify a hub. Maybe a school can be the center point. And use Zoom for follow-up impact of meds, role of educational interventions, 
the impact of OTPT and speech. And using this model, you can really help kids be successful. Number 12, daunting? Yes. But if not you, then who? Number 13, the pearls. Connection is everything. Be a difference maker. Revel in the sacred moments. And as I always say, the magic is in the room. Thank you so much for everything you do. This is a lot to ask, but each of you has the capacity for change and making change. Check out the show notes for links to resources. You can connect with me via www.medicalbhs.com for the newsletter, and we'll be featuring selected topics, focused information, and resources. You can find me on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown, on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino. And again, you can email me at GuginoL at medicalbhs.com. I would love to hear from you. Consider a consultation and please email me if you are interested. I would, again, love to work with you. Take care. Have a great day and join me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh, and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gugino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much, and I hope you will join me next week.